Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show, where shockingly I am Chris Rawl. My friends, we have made it. The long, dark off-season, these last bleak, bland, depressing three months where all good sports have just left us by the side of the road and we've had to think about regular season baseball. It makes our stomachs churn. We have to go and watch the Rocket Mortgage Classic and bet on some dipshit to finish in the top 10. It's over. It's gone. Football is back. Starting tomorrow, we will have real football games, including my favorite team, Nebraska, kicking off the season against Northwestern. I cannot describe how excited I am for the ensuing four months. It is going to be sensational. I'm filled with the hope that comes at the start of every football season before the first game occurs, and I realize there is no hope. So let me bask in this. Let's all bask in this together. That's partially what today's show is about. Um, And honestly, it's going to be about a lot of things. It's about fourth down conversions. It's about start of the college football season. It's about hope and acceptance and all the things that I talk about. It's about Leonard Cohen and his song, Hallelujah. There's a lot of things to take in, uh, but hopefully by the end of today's show, it will be a good springboard for this football season. So let's rock and roll. I will pick up today's show where I left off on Tuesday by talking about Chargers head coach Brandon Staley. And the show is not going to be about the Chargers, uh, but there were a lot of things that I read in an article I mentioned on Tuesday that came from Daniel Popper of The Athletic as he spoke to Brandon Staley and kind of about his coaching strategy and philosophy and how he became the Chargers head coach. There's a lot of things that were in there that I found to be fascinating that I really liked, uh, many of which kind of reflect how I think and what I like. Um, And... To start with, Brandon Staley is probably a pretty good place for today's show because there's an alternate world where already just one year into his head coaching career, he's lauded as kind of a true revolutionary of the game, specifically for his fourth down aggressiveness. There's an alternate world where they beat the Raiders because that fourth down stuff, uh, it, it comes to the forefront and they go for it inside their own 20 on fourth and one and get it and it springboards. Uh, drive for a touchdown and they end up winning that game and they go on a Bengals-like run through the AFC, which is quite plausible with Justin Herbert as your quarterback. And the next thing you know, we're sitting there at season's end going, man, this Brandon Stalen guy, he's really ushering in kind of a new era of coaching football. He's not the first coach to go for it on fourth downs, but he's really, really aggressive in a way that we have never seen at the NFL level. Maybe it's just a flash and pan, maybe it's a blip, and maybe he's fired after two years and we kind of forget about it. I'm of the opinion that this is kind of the start, not necessarily with Brandon Staley, but the last few years, and he is one of the champions at the NFL level. I think this is the start of what will be a fourth down revolution, and we could be looking back in 10 and 15 years ago, oh, this was just a newer, more informed way of playing football than we had in the past, and now it's just common sense that When you're in plus territory and it's fourth and less than five, you always go for it every single time. Kind of in a way that if you look back to the mid 2000s and the way that Mike D'Antoni and the Phoenix Suns were playing basketball, and it was really fun. It was was awesome. It was cool to watch, just like I felt watching the Chargers last year. But there were a lot of questions about, does this translate into winning and uh, this pace and space and shooting threes and fast break Suns kind of stuff. It's fun and cool, but can you really win? And they never ended up winning a championship, even though they definitely could have. And they were kind of left by the wayside as far as random chance and luck is concerned. 
And then 15 years later, we're looking back on that and going, oh, that was a new way of playing basketball. And now literally everybody plays that exact same way. So there's an alternate world where Brandon Staley could have kind of already been that. Instead, right now in present day, he is an incredibly divisive figure. I would say if you want to just distill it into black and white terms, nerds love him, football men hate him. The numbers people, they're all aboard. They're going great. Yeah, fourth downs, we should have been going for these a long time ago. And the, the football guys, the instinct guys, the you win with toughness and grit and defense and running, they hate it because they don't like this embracing of information and analytics that, again, Brandon Staley is one of those people. I talked about that failed fourth and one inside his own 20 against the Raiders. In that final regular season game, the Chargers needed to win to get in the playoffs. Either team, if they won, they got in. If they tied, they both got in. You remember how crazy that all was. But that was a moment that they didn't get it. Raiders score off that. Everybody, and I mean everybody, the next day, that was one of the things they point to and ridicule and say, this is so dumb. Like, I get being aggressive in certain situations. I get going for it and plus territory and forth. Okay, we'll, we'll give you that. But this is just, you've lost yourself in numbers. You've lost yourself in this idea that your offense should always be dictating the terms with Justin Herbert, like I mentioned at the end of Tuesday show. He was ridiculed after a couple weeks prior. They played a Thursday night game against Kansas City. Awesome, awesome, awesome football game. Back and forth, back and forth. Herbert's out of his mind. Mahomes is out of his mind. Goes to overtime. Chiefs win. Chargers fail a bunch of fourth down conversions in that game. Everybody goes, oh, this is just, you can't do this. Kind of completely ignores the way that they won their first Kansas City game, which was just succeeding repeatedly on fourth down again and again and again, including multiple times in the fourth quarter on their game-winning drive. But that's neither here nor there. It spoke to something that I really like. Trust the process. You know, the famous Philadelphia 76er slogan that's now become kind of a, a mocking slogan. But if you really think about it, it's a very good slogan. You know, process is greater than results. I tell myself that all the time in golf. I believe that in life. You have a process and you stick to it and it's good. Results will come at some point. You just kind of got to trust in that translation. And I think Brandon Staley is in that same boat. Because the Chargers were incredibly aggressive on fourth downs last year. I want to read something from Daniel Popper of The Athletic in that article. In total, the Chargers went for it on 34 of 108 fourth downs across 17 games. A 31.5% go rate that was the highest in the league. Despite the high rate, the Chargers were tied for fourth in fourth down conversion rate at 64.7% making them the only team in the league with a go rate over 25% and a conversion rate over 60%, end quote. So you see, incredibly successful from a process standpoint. Most aggressive team by going for it, top four team in the league by conversion, that's a really good recipe for getting more uh, drives extended than your opposition, which over the course of time, that is I promise you it's going to benefit you. It's not a hot take. You don't need to dive too deep into the numbers to comprehend that. However, when you can pick out individual moments, like a couple against Kansas City in their second game, or like that one against the Raiders inside their own 20, you can point and go, no, this is stupid. This is dumb. You know, this is not a good way of playing football. And when push comes to shove, you kind of got to trust your instincts. And a lot of what this article was about is kind of those two things. Analytics, which is essentially information. Instincts, the thing that we all want to believe 
we have that separates us from our peers, you know? I think deep down, it's like, okay, instincts, you shouldn't really trust anybody, but you should trust your own, you know? And what those things actually mean, whether they're working independently or in unison with one another. Analytics, instincts, those kind of things. Now, after reading this whole article, which again, I would recommend everybody to read, it's on The Athletic, it's by Daniel Popper. My interpretation of everything that occurred within it is kind of something that I already thought, but maybe was solidified a little bit more as I was reading the article. And it's just kind of the, the thing that I've spoken to on this show, that there is a lot of power and freedom that comes from understanding that I don't know a lot <laughs> and I can control very little of the things that come across my plate in life. So I want to read a couple paragraphs because Staley kind of echoes that in a roundabout way. Here we go. The only noise in the office is the flip, flip, flip of turning pages until Brandon Staley finds the passage he is looking for and reads aloud. The new definition of a nerd, he recites, is a person who knows his own mind well enough to mistrust it. He looks up. Your instincts aren't better than everybody on earth, Staley says. Do I think one of the big reasons why I became the head coach of the Chargers is because I've got instincts? Yes. But do I think that when it comes to making these premium decisions in the heat of the moment that, man, my instincts are so much better than everybody else and I would do a perfect job if I didn't have any information? There's just no way. Staley is also determined to find advantages wherever he can, to better his team and give his players the best opportunities to be successful, even if it means admitting what he does not know. Staley sees a potential advantage in the admission, and in acquiring as much information as he can from as many resources as possible, in knowing his own mind well enough to mistrust it, end quote. A lot of things I like in there. Um, I love just the, the simple data point that I shared at the end of Tuesday's show, where he's like, you know what is in our best interest? Putting the ball in Justin Herbert's hands. <laughs> it's a thing that starting in 2010 was my number one knock against Mike McCarthy's coaching style with Aaron Rodgers, my favorite player. I know I'm always going, so it, this is not instinctual. This is not analytical. This is literally common sense. It's just using your eyes. You want the ball in Aaron Rodgers' hands as much as possible. If he can dictate the terms of the game more times than not, you will win. So when we're punting on fourth and twos, that's not in our best interest. When we're running on third and four, that's not in our best interest. When we're running on first down repeatedly over and over, that's not in our best interest. He should be the one dictating the terms of engagement. Um, Brandon Staley comes from that similar place. And once you expand beyond just really common sense things, you start to get into the realm that I'm always talking about. We'd never really know as much as we think we know. Uh, really smart people say that. Really dumb people say that. Me, somebody who's probably somewhere in the middle, I say that. I think if you're really honest with yourself and with your experiences in life, you will also echo that sentiment. Um, for me, that's true for things that are intimately involved with my life. And things that I follow from afar, which sports can be both of those at the same time. Things that I'm really, really tuned into and I consume information around the clock. And sometimes I still don't know shit. And other times I follow things and, and understand them, understand in great air quotes from afar. And then realize in retrospect, oh, I know nothing about that because why would I? I never come across these people. I don't know them as people. 
well, how would I actually be able to know what was going on here? There was an interesting conversation, actually, I heard uh, the other day. I was listening to The Audible, which is a college football podcast. Bruce Feldman's one of the hosts, and he was interviewing Yogi Roth, who was involved with the Elite 11 quarterbacks at camp. Uh, he wrote a book about it. And he was talking kind of about, again, in a roundabout way, this similar idea of just like, nobody really knows what's going on. And it's weird from a media perspective because we always talk about things like we know everything. You know, you you learn a shred of truth about somebody and then you extrapolate that into whatever meaning you want it to be. Which again, that can be really hard to do with people you know intimately and you know all of the details. And it's infinitely harder when you just know one thing about a person you don't actually know them. And for example, he gave, he was talking about Two quarterback recruits at the time, Jimmy Clausen, huge quarterback recruit who ended up signing with Notre Dame, wasn't that successful, was drafted by the Panthers, never really had an NFL career, but whatever. And then Josh Rosen, who was a huge quarterback recruit, signed with UCLA, got drafted by the Cardinals, never really panned out in the NFL, same kind of story. But there were two incidents he referred to. With Jimmy Clausen, it was like, okay, when he signed with Notre Dame, they had this huge kind of extravaganza, like, oh, look at this, uh, number one quarterback recruit coming to Notre Dame. And all that stuff did happen. And at the time, I remember, and it was my memory was jogged by what Yogi was talking about. He's just like, yeah, at the time, like everybody grabbed it and was just like, look at this ass. And this like me first kind of the world revolves around me and I'm the biggest quarterback recruit and blah, 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 blah. Right. And that's how it was covered at the time. And that's the only thing we knew about it. It was just like, oh, yeah, this guy seems kind of like a, a, an egotist. He's like, well, what was weird about that? And like, if you knew Jimmy Clausen, you would know this, but it wasn't until years later that we really had a more all-encompassing understanding of the situation is that Notre Dame as a program wanted him to do that. They were the ones who pushed him down that road because they said, this is the best thing that we can do for our recruiting. We'll have essentially just this national platform to throw a Notre Dame party and express why you want to come to our school. So they used Jimmy Clausen as the tool and he was the one who bore the brunt of the criticism because criticism will always arrive for every situation. That's just the way that the media works. And then we got to a place where this was a true uh, thing that did happen, but the way that it was covered was not really rooted in reality. We never really know as much as we think we know, right? Josh Rosen had the same thing. Um, he talked about how this was years later, but he talked about when he went to UCLA, it was just like, uh, it was kind of weird. And it was hard for me to find friends because I was like this celebrity, but... Everybody knew who I was. And so like at the time, he just wanted to try and make some friends with people. So we joined a uh, uh, fraternity, which was an innocent thing, according to him, just like, oh, I was just looking for like camaraderie just to hang out with people, you know, that didn't sit there and and treat me like I was the greatest thing on planet Earth because I was a freshman quarterback at UCLA. And at the time, the coverage about that, which again, it was true, he did do that. He joined a fraternity. Coverage was like, oh, this guy doesn't care about football and he's just here to party and look at this dipshit who's now here in college. There's the, the more that like I I am inundated is probably the right word if I'm saying that correctly uh, with media and, and coverage and narratives and all those kinds of things. The more I consume it, the more I just am like, uh, I can take some of this and, and use it. And especially the stuff that I want to use for gambling. That's what I really want. But other than that, you never really know because even the people that are in charge of covering it, they really don't know. Interesting thing to think about. Um, and going back to the Brandon Staley talking stuff. Once you start to bring 
numbers into things. I think it enhances an understanding of a situation, but you can never truly understand everything. You know, bring numbers in. It's more information. Brandon Staley's sitting there with these fourth down charts, color-coded, you know, map every yard of the entire field and it says every single situation and it's coded green for go and red for stop and shades of it if it's, you know, trust yourself or make a decision in advance. But he just wants to get to the point where it's an, it's not a, a sit and think about it and go, oh, let's trust my gut right now. Let's punt or let's go for it. It's just kind of a bloodless, cold, no, 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 no. We've already practiced this in the same way that a quarterback trusts the the muscular way they can drop back and throw a slant on target five million different times. We get in a certain situation. We don't think about it. It's kind of an instinctual reaction in that sense. We just go, what is it? Fourth and two from the opposition's 45. It's go. Here's the play. So it's more information. You know, it's going to help you in certain ways. It will definitely help you with fourth down conversions. I really do believe that as far as the process is concerned. But there is no overarching way to measure or understand everything in football to the 100th degree. Take it from me. Take it from Brandon Staley. Take it from pretty much anybody. Um, but that's why this sport is the best, I think. Because it's that blend of known and unknown that I'm always talking about. The stuff that you can watch and go, I know when Justin Herbert's playing, it's going to be freaking sweet. And he's going to do things that'll make my jaw drop. And I know that the Chargers are going to go for it on fourth down, but... Ooh, when it's just boiling down to one play, you're going to get a lot of unknown. It's just chance and luck and fruitcake bounces the ball and ref calls and all the stuff that comprise the margins, the things that ultimately will dictate who wins and who loses at these high-level NFL games. So along those lines, as I'm accumulating more information, I'm reading more in the offseason because I'm ready for this season, I'm ready for the season. I'm making all my win total bets, my divisional bets for the NFL, my conference and divisional bets for college football, Heisman bets, all that kind of stuff. Just accumulating more information. Bill Barnwell, who's one of my favorite writers for ESPN. He's a big numbers person. He writes a couple articles every year before. Well, he writes a bunch of articles every year before the season, but two of them that he's just released within the last week are regression candidates for both positive and negative. So teams that are most likely to improve, teams that are most likely to decline. And it's usually just revolving around like a couple different things. One of those things is your record in close games which he talks a lot about and it matches up with what I consume as a viewer. It's just like, uh, you know what? We want to believe that certain teams or quarterbacks or coaches, they have the edge because of their instincts and the way that they play and all this kind of stuff in close games. So if they have a bunch of three point games, they're going to come out on top more times than not because they have this magical quality that we really can't quantify. And that's just not really true over the course of a large, large, large sample size. Because football is a fickle, fickle game. So if you're getting into the fourth quarter and there's six minutes to go and it's tied, there's just a lot of things that can happen that will decide who's going to win and who's going to lose. So he tracks that with each team every year. And he'll talk about in these teams that are most likely to improve and decline. One of the leading indicators is always that just a regression to the mean as it pertains to your record in close games. And he's talking about the Titans in one of his sections who the last two years have had incredible records in one score games. Seven and two in 2020, and then they followed up. I think they, they won seven more games the next year. And it's just like, okay, this isn't pretty crazy to do that in back-to-back years. Not really sustainable. Um, and it, it's, it's way more likely from a mathematical perspective than not that this team will not be able to, A, replicate that record in close games, but B, just like kind of even be anywhere near it. 
And, and he gives an example about this that I think really illustrates how close NFL football games are and the fact that once you get down to the end and it's tied or within three points, a lot of it is just about luck. So here's something he says. After going seven and six in one score games during coach Mike Vrabel's first two years, the 2020 Titans went seven and two in one score games. History tells us that's extremely difficult to sustain. Teams that win five more close games than they lose in a given year often don't keep that up in the following season. They go from 199 and 44, that's a win percentage of 819 in those close games, to 102 and 126. That's a 447 win percentage in those same games the following year. Their overall record declines by an average of four wins per 17 games, end quote. This is something he's been onto for a long time. And as I've read him over the years, something that I've been really cognizant of and just watching NFL games every week. And if you really want to map out each team's seasons, you can understand that there's always a three or four win variance that just comes down to, okay, did your kicker make it versus their kicker making it? Okay, did this fumble that was on the turf, was it recovered by you or the opposition? That dictated this game. Uh, this fourth down at the end of a game, who got it and who didn't? And those things can easily flip from one year to the next. Mathematically speaking, you probably should just be around 500. You've seen teams, you know, as Barnwell's saying, that have essentially an 82% win percentage in those games. The following year, it's 44% because that's just how life works. You know, a lot of things that actually uh, we think we are controlling, it's just kind of chance, it's luck, you know? And that's, if we go back to the media issue and the thing that I was kind of referencing with the Feldman-Yogi Roth conversation, one of the main things and maybe the main thing that I wish I could get from sports media and, and the way that football was covered from a mainstream perspective is that we would talk about this sport in all of its glorious ways, but also with the caveat that nobody really knows anything. And many times the end result is simple luck. And so that could be quarterback narratives. That could be team narratives. That could be coach narratives. At the end of the day, you can get there and go, there's a wide variety of talking outcomes, the way that this is covered that just boiled down to who recovered that fumble. So the other night in preparation for, actually this was unplanned, but I did it because it's great preparation for the college football season, which starts tomorrow. Holy shit. I can't describe how good that feels to say, <laughs> but Nebraska is opening their season tomorrow. They've been my favorite team my whole life. Um, the other day, there's no sports on. I got an hour or two to burn before bed. I just finished my book. I didn't want to start another. So I'm like, let's see what's on here. You know, maybe I can catch some broke down baseball game. It was, it was a dark night, but I, I get on television and I get recommended from Big Ten Network. It goes, guess what's on, you know, Nebraska classic, 1997, Nebraska, Missouri. I'm like, oh, I, that sounds so appealing to watch. One of the iconic games of my childhood. This was November 8th, 1997. Nebraska, who ends up winning or splitting the national title that year with Michigan. Um, it's, it's one of the most iconic games in the history of the program. It's also a game that is just pretty crazy from a luck perspective. And I hadn't watched it in a really long time. So the second half was just starting and I go, hell yeah, I'm all on this. So I watched the second half in overtime. It's an insane game. It's, it's so insane, even more insane than I remembered. And I was kind of laughing to myself because... 
thinking about Brandon Staley and fourth down aggressiveness and coaching decisions, there was a, a point with three minutes in the game and Nebraska's down seven. It's 38-31. Nebraska has the ball. They go for it on third down. This is around like their own 40-yard line or so. Scott Frost, who's now the Nebraska coach, he's quarterback at the time. They go and get it. It's like fourth and four. And they, they get four yards on third down. It's fourth and four. There's three minutes to go. Nebraska has all their timeouts, but they're down by seven points. They're also an option offense. They like, I, I can't describe it would be the equivalent of asking Navy to try and a make a stop and then run a two minute drill. That's based upon passing with no timeouts. That was the equivalent of what Nebraska would be doing. Instead, they don't get that third down. And as soon as it's, uh, as soon as they're tackled, the announcers for the game was on ABC. It was Brett Musburger and Dan Fouts, the number one announcing team. I was laughing because they don't even bat an eye. As soon as they get tackled, they go, Oh man. And now Nebraska's going to have to punt. And I'm looking at the clock. There's three minutes to go. Nebraska's down seven. They do have their timeouts. And I'm like, this is so weird that this was just, it wasn't even thought about, you know? And Tom Osborne, who is one of the greatest coaches in the history of the sport, he doesn't hesitate. He's just like, yeah, punt units out. We're punting. So they punt the ball back to Missouri. They waste all their timeouts. And Missouri actually ends up getting a first down. And they punt the ball back to Nebraska with a little bit over a minute to go. And I'm, I, I couldn't even fathom it again, even though I like know what happens in this game. I'm just like, the odds of this happening are so slim. First of all, that decision in hindsight seems insane. Like if that happened now, that would lead and Nebraska ends up losing. That would lead first take and all these shows and everybody go, what are you talking about? You need to be more like Brandon Staley. And then if you went for it and failed, they do what all sports media things do. It would lead first take and they go, what a dipshit. Why did he go for it on fourth down? There's a lot less talking about the process and it's just dictated by what is the individual result. Again, kind of a qualm that I have with the way that football is covered. But watching Osborne's decision through the way that I view football now, I'm going, this is insanity. This is insanity. Didn't think that at the time. I mean, I was 11 years old. I was just like, yeah, send the black shirts back out, uh, play some defense, stop them, and here we go. And as it turns out, the process unsound, according to my present day mind, works out for Nebraska at the time. Get the stop against all odds. Scott Frost in the shotgun throwing in an offense that is designed to do everything but just drop back and pass. Somehow he's completing passes down the sideline, getting Nebraska in range. And ultimately what decides the difference between a third national championship and the cherry on top of the Sunday that was Tom Osborne's career. He retired after the Orange Bowl that year is Frost throwing to the end zone to Shevin Wiggins with the clock expiring to zero, hitting his chest, him kicking it straight up in the air, Matt Davison diving in, catching it as Musburger freaks out. They kick an extra point. They go to overtime. They win in overtime. They use that to go to the end of the season. And Nebraska's a national champion. It's kind of crazy, just the swinging doors moments for teams that like literally won national championships or Super Bowls. And if you really examine the margins, you're just like, oh, yeah, the difference between this team being one of the lost teams in history, like a 1999 Nebraska, or being a truly celebrated final season of Tom Osborne's career, national champion, uh, way more likely than not, that is the last national championship that Nebraska will ever win in the sport of football. You know, that's a, probably a 99% chance, honestly. And the difference between it was just, oh, yeah. They made a weird fourth down decision. They somehow made a stop. They, in a two-minute drill, drove down the field with an option offense 
a dude kicked the ball in the air for their go ahead or for their tying touchdown with no time on the clock. Like, think about this. It's crazy, right? As I was watching it too, um, I was kind of just reflecting probably is a good word on how funny it is the way that my mind changes. That's a continual theme of this show. You know, I record a lot about it. It was like, ah, it's weird that like, I paid a lot of attention to football then. Yeah, I was 11, but like I was a nerd, nerdy ass kid. And I was nerdy as hell when it came to football. And I never thought about fourth downs at all. It's just like, oh, this is conventional way that's played. And now I'm just like, yeah, I couldn't be more offended by the process of that decision, you know? And it's weird how much my mind changes. I'm continually struck by that. Um, it's just a constant point of reflection. Thing that makes me laugh. Sometimes it makes me kind of feel a sense of awe, just like, oh this change occurred and it really like kind of uh, gave a, a profound meaning or truth to me that I did not have before. And I don't think I'm alone in that just reflection, uh, just how much change occurs. And sometimes you take a step back and go, Oh, that's weird. You know, let's talk about fourth down decisions. That's a funny thing to think about. Just the way that's transformed from 1997 to 2015 to 2022 when Brandon Staley is going for it on over 30% of their actual times that the Chargers could go on a fourth down. That's crazy. But as we think about change and just kind of the reflection process and that, I, I think it comes, a lot of it comes back to the accumulation of information. You know, I, I think for the most part, a lot of change is just motivated by that. Fourth down conversions. Yeah, absolutely. Just the more we think about something the better humans are at maybe trying to improve. doesn't always work that way. But I think more times than not, we get to a point and say, hmm, we now know a lot more about this subject than we did. We can think about it in a smarter way. Let's try and enact smarter principles to whatever this may be. That's true across the board and everything. Uh, football. I was actually reading about uh, hockey the other day because hockey's cool as hell. I don't need an excuse to read about hockey. I don't know why I'm explaining this, <laughs> but, but there was an article. It was from Michael Russo, the athletic. And he was, he was talking about a bunch of different things within the sport and they were kind of tied into this overarching theme. Just like, yeah, there's a lot of change going on within hockey. And there's much like with Brandon Staley's decision, there's a lot of like kind of divisive topics. Just some people are way into it. And the older school crowd, the, the hockey man crowd, they're like, no, we don't like this. And I think the best place is to kind of meet somewhere in the middle of those things and go, we're being honest with ourselves. What is truly in the best interest of this sport for these players and coaches and teams and all that kind of stuff. And Michael Russo, he actually is talking to the GM of the Columbus Blue Jackets. His name is Yarmo Kekalayan, Finnish dude. And he had a quote that I really liked about just kind of change. And maybe the process that you need to accept certain things that are changing that you can't control. And just maybe there's a lot of profound truth and meaning within that transaction. And this is what Yarmo said, talking about kind of the state of the sport. Young people, they like to express themselves. You see it from their outfits to their different tricks. I think the old generation sometimes looks at it and says, wow, this wasn't allowed in our days or would never have been tolerated. But you know what? We used to take a horse and buggy to work and now we drive cars. Life changes. So does hockey. Today's generation, they're not afraid to make mistakes, so they take a little bit more chances. That can sometimes be frustrating to management, but it's certainly entertaining. There aren't too many boring teams anymore. It's good that I'm already bald 
because some of the plays made today would make me lose my hair, end quote. You can take that for hockey. I mean, you can think of Trevor Zegris or just some of the newer infusion of talent that play hockey in a really different way. Kel McCarr actually is probably a good example, even though I don't think there are any warts that you can pick up with his game. But Zegris is a great example of like very divisive. I think he's entertaining as hell. Will that translate into winning hockey? All these spinoramas and Michigan goals? I don't know. Maybe when the Ducks are better, we'll have a better gauge. It's fun to watch. I do know that much. And I do think there's something there of there's always opportunity to change and try and improve within whatever you're doing in life, no matter what conventional wisdom is telling you. And I really like what Yarmo is saying within there because I think uh, this this quote is kind of coming from a place of acceptance. You know, thing that I value a lot, you know this, you listen to the show. Accepting that you cannot change or affect many things in life. So you either come to terms with them or you spend the rest of your days as a very bitter human wishing for the past. Those are kind of your two options in those, <laughs> within this, uh, this dilemma, if you want to call it that. And I think I'm pretty good at being in the first part of that and the one area that you know that I really fight that second part is my battle with college football and with Nebraska fandom, you know, going, ugh, I kind of wish for the past watching 1997, Nebraska, Missouri. You have no idea just the feelings of nostalgia that it stirs up inside me. And there's a part of me that's like way proud and happy. Cause I'm just like, Oh yeah, there was a time when Nebraska was good. And I experienced that in real life. And I remember everything about this game and where I was and all that kind of stuff. And then there's a large part of me going, oh, I really miss this version of college football. I really miss that Nebraska used to be good at football. <laughs> Those are two things that have not been around for a long time. So it's that juggling act, you know, where I'm coming into the season opener. They're playing Northwestern tomorrow. And in the midst of all that, where I'm just like, oh, wishing for the past, wishing for the past. At the same time, I'm like, okay, a little bit of a reflection point today. I'm kind of always struck by how much hope I can feel for a season opener in the face of 20 years of evidence. You know, this is a team that has not been good in a long, long, long time. This is a team under Scott Frost that is they're winning four games a year. I mean, his record is 15 and 29 in four years coaching. Not been good. Not been good for a really long time. Not been nationally relevant for over 20 years. But we always get to this point and I'm just like, okay, well, what? let's get more information, you know? Let's get more information. Let's judge this team independently of prior years. And honestly, this one, if we talk about that process of accumulation of information, the thing that Brandon Staley's trumpeting and, and I trumpet, honestly. And I go, you can't know everything, but try to be more informed. And, you know, then we go from there. If you want numerical reasons to believe in Nebraska this year, they are there times a million. If you want to talk about positive regression candidates, this is a team for the ages. I mean, they were a three and nine team last year that <laughs> they were so good and they were three and nine. It was, I can't even fully describe what it was like watching last year's Nebraska team, but every single metric you can look at. They're all pointing with giant neon signs. They're like, no, this was actually a pretty good football team last year. They lost an incredible amount. Actually, every loss they had was by single digits. They lost to a, a ton of really good football teams in excruciating, unreplicable ways. Whether that was the Michigan State game or the Michigan game or the Wisconsin game or the Oklahoma game or the Ohio State game. There's just, 
there were so many games that they were right there. And then the deciding factor was just like, oh, yeah, we forgot that we were punting left instead of right. Our punter just decided to do that. And Michigan State, a team that I think finished with 11 wins and made a New Year's Six Bowl and beat Pitt in it and was awesome. And they couldn't get a first down in the second half against Nebraska. And the only reason they scored a touchdown and forced overtime is because Nebraska's punter forgot which way he was supposed to punt. And they were directional punting right, and he kicked it straight left on a line drive. And Jane Reed caught it and ran untouched in the end zone because Nebraska wasn't there. That stuff is just, you can't even fathom that. Their second order win totals, it's just a play-by-play metric. Like, how do you perform? What's the process, you know? What's the process? The better indicator of future success than strict wins and losses, the more black and white terms that you're probably going to hear talked about on first take. You go to second order wins, just, okay, you line up all these plays. What would you expect this team to do? Nebraska more than doubled the next closest team as far as the negative side of that spectrum. Their second order wins was great. They, in actuality, won three games. So it's just, again, the neon signs going positive regression, positive regression, positive regression. I mean, I bet them over seven and a half win total, just setting myself up for an incredible amount of emotional and financial failure. But alongside that, there's a lot of professional gamblers that I respect that are trumpeting the same thing. Nebraska over seven and a half. That's a really good bet within the Big Ten. Schedule is very favorable. Uh, Their first nine games, Oklahoma at home, that's the hardest one. And there's a lot of games that they could win in there. Actually, if you're being honest and you think this team is pretty good, they should win all of those games. Will they? Most likely not, but you can paint a rosier picture depending upon how you want to interpret this information that's there at our disposal. But, you know, here we are. Got a ticket over seven and a half. Um, I have the emotional hope and uh, stakes that are riding starting tomorrow throughout the season. Might work, might not. That's kind of life. (laughs) That's a probably a good slogan to put on a (laughs) t-shirt. But if if I am being honest with myself, And, you know, that hope and optimism and financial stakes, I go, yeah, this could happen, but I need to know my mind well enough, and I hope that I do, to mistrust it and realize that football, like life, is in large part dictated by luck. And it just is. I have way too much evidence that proves that point over the last 36 years of existence. And it's not just applicable to Nebraska or whatever your college football team is or the Chargers or Tennessee is a regression candidate, Tennessee Titans. I mean, just the amount of chance and luck, I can't even fathom how much it plays a role in everything. I was actually reading some, this is how we're going to end the show. Um, I was reading about Leonard Cohen, a very famous musician, one of the great songwriters of all time. I was reading a bunch of stuff about his most famous song, Hallelujah. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. It is lyrically impeccable. Uh, it has been covered by everyone under the sun. You all know what the song is. I play it on guitar a lot because I think it's a badass song. What's interesting about that song and kind of Cohen's career as a whole is it was completely unrecognized in the moment. His career, which had been successful, um, It had kind of gotten to a low point when he wrote Hallelujah and released it, which was in 1984. Um, 
he'd kind of started falling down and I'd say like the late seventies, he released an LP called death of a ladies man. It was just, everybody gave it eight thumbs down. His next album was called recent songs. It was the same thing. So he's just sitting there and it's just kind of one of those, like, uh, maybe I've lost the talent. Maybe it's not there, whatever, you know, just kind of the, the feelings of doubt that arrive in everybody whenever something that you're passionate about and want to do well, doesn't do well. And you go, is this me? I think it's just me. And a lot of times I don't think we're as forgiving about that process as we should be and go, I think this is pretty good, but for whatever reason, it's not catching on. And maybe a lot of that I can't necessarily control. It's not to say I shouldn't always be refining and trying to improve, but sometimes this is just how life works. So he releases an LP called Various Positions in 1984. And the opening side of the the second, or the opening song of the second side is Hallelujah. Which was, nobody thought about it. Nothing is executives on his label at the time. They're saying, yeah, what? Okay, this is a bunch of shit. Who cares? They actually didn't want to release the album. Uh, they end up doing that. No, no fanfare, nothing. Song, nobody cares. And it's not till years later. Kind of starts in 1988. Bob Dylan, to his great credit, if Bob Dylan recognizes something, it's probably a good sign. He's one of the first artists who starts playing this as a cover in 1988. Everyone's like, oh, okay, you know. And then John Cale from the Velvet Underground, he records a cover of it in 1991. And then three years later in 1994 is kind of when it really takes off because that's the most famous cover of it. Jeff Buckley on his album, Grace, uh, right before he ends up dying. He records it. That's my favorite version of it. I think that's most people's favorite version of it. That's the one that just kicks it directly into the sun. It's like, holy shit, what is this song? How how is it? From a structural perspective, it's perfect musically. From a lyrical perspective, it's perfect musically. From a theme perspective and just like making you think about these all-encompassing themes of life and love and sex and religion and just how complex being alive can be. It's perfect. It's impeccable in all those ways. And now we realize that. It's been covered by everybody under the sun, including me. I throw my hat in the ring as a great musician along the lines of the Velvet Underground and Bob Dylan. But it's interesting tracking that whole time and kind of realizing like, oh yeah, even within what we now realize to be a truly timeless work, people didn't understand it and recognize it at the time for many years. There's an alternate reality where nobody ever did and it was just lost by the wayside. And instead now it's like, okay, yeah, consensus opinion, impeccable song, impeccable lyrics. So I want to end today on kind of that, that thought. Just, I think it's a really, uh, probably a good tapestry of like the themes of today's show, kind of how they're all woven in, um, you know, hope and acceptance and luck and chance and understanding things in the moment versus understanding them in retrospect, whether that's fourth down decisions or trick plays in hockey or 1997 Nebraska games or tomorrow's Nebraska opener against Northwestern or Leonard Cohen and Hallelujah. Because Leonard Cohen gave a great quote that I'm going to end today on. It was from a book that it's published within the last couple of years. It's written by Alan Light. And it's about kind of this song and just a lot of stuff that went into it and Leonard Cohen's career in general. And he was asking him about just like, okay, what this song, you know, it's your most timeless work. 
what what is going on here you know <laughs> well talk to us about just what was happening at this time and this is what Cohen had to say about it and i think it's a perfect note to end today's show on this world is full of conflicts and full of things that cannot be reconciled but there are moments when we can transcend the dualistic system and reconcile and embrace the whole mess and that's what i mean by hallelujah that regardless of what the impossibility of the situation is, there is a moment when you open your mouth and you throw open your arms and you embrace the thing and you just say, hallelujah. The only moment that you can live here comfortably in these absolutely irreconcilable conflicts is in this moment. When you embrace it all and you say, look, I don't understand a fucking thing at all. Hallelujah. That's the only moment that we live here fully as human beings. Thank you for listening to this show. It is produced by my good friend, Weston Tanner. If you have not signed up for my newsletter, you need to go and do that. It is easy. It is at chrisrawl.com. Go and subscribe to it and it comes out every Wednesday. I'll be talking a lot about football for the ensuing four months. Please and thank you. Now, I wish you a very happy week zero. Hopefully by the time this is out. Nebraska will have beaten Northwestern and I am walking around with a big smile on my face. And then we are going to launch into week one of the college football season next week. And then week one of the NFL season the following week and our lives will be happy and all will be well in the world. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you on Tuesday. Tuesday.